Welcome to the Franchise Hounds podcast. I'm Greg Macchia, a certified franchise consultant. Thanks for joining me as I interview franchise industry pros to dissect, explore, and discover franchise ownership. Joining me today is Ken Leinberger. Ken is the president of Water's Edge Wineries. Water's Edge Wineries is a micro winery franchise. They allow you to own a winery without the risk and hassle of owning a vineyard. They outsource all of the agriculture part of the winery business and simply import the crushed grapes from vineyards worldwide, allowing franchisees to become independent producers of wine. Water's Edge wineries are located in urban populated areas and retail space. They essentially bring the winery to the people. Water's Edge wineries was recognized as a franchise dictionary magazine Top 100 Game Changer for 2019, and is part of Fran Serve's Fantastic 500 for the past two years. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Ken Leinberger from Water's Edge Wineries. Ken, welcome to Franchise Hounds. Thanks for joining us. All right. Hey, thanks, Greg. Uh, not many people would think of a winery when they think about franchise opportunities, and, and that's really you know why I love kind of working with candidates and, and doing what I do and opening their eyes to these these different options. So I'm excited to talk to you today and learn, and learn more about this opportunity. Yeah, you bet. So maybe a good place to start. Uh, what's the what's the history of Water's Edge wineries? So uh, we, we started this back in 2004. The first winery we founded uh, was in Rancho Cucamonga, California. And really my goal was twofold when we founded the first location. Um, the first goal was could I create a winery without depending upon local vineyards or local agriculture of any kind? I, I couldn't care less about growing grapes or farming or anything. I was just interested in the wine. <laughs> uh, so that was that was the first goal. And, and could we ultimately uh, source product from all around the globe uh, and, and be able to take advantage of places as far as away as, as Italy and France and New Zealand and Australia and South America? I mean, you could go on and on with the different uh, areas of the world that they grow fantastic grapes in for uh, winemaking. And then the second goal was, could we create a business that is franchisable, meaning uh, it's repeatable, we could teach somebody the processes, uh, we could document them, and most importantly, we could get a consistently great product out of it at the end of that process, and could we teach others how to do that? And so we developed the model with those two foundational ideas in place to be able to do that. And it took us about uh, six or seven years to really perfect it. And by 2012, we were ready to go with the franchise itself. So we uh, created Water's Edge Wineries, and that was the franchising brand that we came out with. And so that uh, that began in 2012. Now, fast forward to 2021, uh, we've got about 20 locations uh, nationwide. We're growing pretty rapidly again this year. Last year was a little bit of a, a pause on growth, uh, as you can imagine. But uh, this year, I'm excited because there are so many people out there that really want are interested in doing this. Yeah, that's great. I I always find it interesting when I when I talk to founders to understand whether when they started their initial business whether they went into it with the idea that they would like to franchise it. And it sounds like you did approach it that way. We absolutely did. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it it helps when they do because they they go into it with a different mindset and you know really make all the decisions from day one. 
with that being the end game. Uh, and I think that helps uh, when you do start to franchise it. Do you do you personally have a background in winemaking? <laughs> no, I have a background in wine drinking. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> I'm right there with you. That was you. the qualification I figured I could start this thing with. So. I'm ready. Sign me up then. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, we, we pretty much created the processes uh, and, and uh, did that so that it was uh, uh, simple. I in fact, one of the questions I have, uh, I get sometimes from, from prospective owners is, do I need to go hire a professional winemaker? And uh, my answer is no, I'd prefer you don't because our processes are different enough that somebody that's gone through, say, UC Davis or some other uh, university and gotten a degree in enology, they've, they've overcomplicated the whole process. And they're going to, they're really going to, this almost becomes like a, a an art form for them. And, and, and that's not what we want. We want a repeatable Create a process that we've created that I don't need somebody that's graduated from a school of enology to be able to do. That's cool. You know, I'm I'm here in Boulder, Colorado, which is kind of a mecca for for craft brewing, and and this kind of reminds me, and maybe you could correct me, but it seems like a similar model where you know they're obviously not growing hops on site, but they're 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 doing the brewing on site. So this is kind of like a, a micro winery concept, if that's a if that's a term. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. It kind of cracks me up, Greg, that. You know, nobody walks outside the the microbrewer, these these urban breweries that are popping up, and say, "Hey, where's all your grain fields, man?" <laughs> they just assume that you know it's, they're bringing it in from everywhere around wherever Kansas or Nebraska or wherever it's grown. So we're we're just doing the same thing, but with uh, with grapes. That's that's really neat. I mean, and and the fact that you're able to bring this concept to to the masses. I mean, gosh, opening a traditional winery, you know, with a vineyard. I mean. Tens of millions of dollars, I would imagine, right? And um, yeah, so a lot of people probably don't think that's that's attainable. But this this is pretty cool. Yeah, there's a there's an old saying in the traditional wine industry: if you want to make a small fortune in in the wine business, start with a large one. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the same with boat ownership, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's two ha- the hap- the two happiest days of a boat owner's life: the day they buy it and the day they sell it, right? <laughs> oh, too funny. So so you don't you don't grow the grapes. Um, you don't even you don't crush the grapes, right? You outsource kind of all those functions, uh, and and then bring that product in. Then it's made on on site, typically. Yeah, essentially, here, here's how it works. We we have a, a primary supplier. We actually have multiple suppliers, but one of our primary suppliers, uh, they're one of the largest winemaking companies in the world, and they have contracts globally with growers and vineyards uh, all around the world. So we let them handle all that. We, we work with one of their divisions that specializes in this for us. And uh, so they go source it, they bring it in, they create what I call, they, they do what I call all hard science on the, the, they do the crushing obviously and make it into juice or must as we call it. And it's the pure varietal juice. So it's a Cabernet Sauvignon, it's a Merlot, it's a Chardonnay, it's a, a Sangiovese. All those different varietals, they turn it into juice and then they do the hard science in the lab. They make sure that the pH is correct, uh, the bricks, which is the sugar levels, are, are correct for what we need. If it's a blend, they're blending it for us already. So when we get it at each one of our locations, again, still in the varietal juice format, um, our owners really just have to go through a four-stage process that takes anywhere from about uh, two months to as much as uh, three months, maybe a little over, but right in that range, to be able to produce the wine. Now, if it's a red, they still have to age it up uh, from six to 12 months before it'll be ready to be put out on the shelf. But our white wines and our sangria wines, after they make it, they can pretty much bottle and sell it um, the next day. It doesn't require any aging process. That's neat. And, you know, I have limited knowledge of, of the vineyard and winemaking industry, but I imagine you're, you're 
really taken out the biggest risk in that in that industry, and that's you know the risk associated with growing the grapes, right? Whether it's weather or, or some kind of natural disaster or something like that, and you're taking that out of the equation with your ability to source grapes from all over the world from different regions and stuff. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right, Greg. And and you know one of the biggest risks a winery has is exactly that. And you've got other risks. You've got pests. You've got you know weather, as you mentioned. And here in California, we're going back into an extreme drought condition. So our our wineries here in California are really concerned about the ability to get water to the to the vineyards to be able to grow the grapes. So in our case, even our California winery in Long Beach is not worried about that because if for some reason and we haven't seen this impact yet any of the product from California. But if it was, we can still continue to source products from all around the rest of the globe. So there's never a, a regional risk as other wineries might face uh, in any kind of a crop issue. That's the, and, and, and beyond that, you're, you're kind of bringing wineries or, or putting them in, in places where you don't typically see them, where you don't have access to them, like, you know, urban areas and things like that, right? Yeah, that's uh, really the, I think it's a fascinating statistic that I, I stumbled upon a few years ago that uh, 80% of the wineries in the United States are in just six states. So there are 44 states out there with only 20% of all the wineries. And, and people are craving the winery experience. They wish they could go to them, but they can't because they're not nearby or there aren't very many of them nearby. If I told you on, on just a, a statistical basis that there, there were 80% of the gas stations were in just six states in this country, an entrepreneur, you'd be like, holy cow, let's start building gas stations everywhere. These people need it because wine is not any different. It, uh, people want wine. They love wine. They, and more importantly, they love the wine experience. Anybody can go buy wine at a grocery store or many states, even at your local you know, uh, uh, gas station, to go back to that analogy. But that's not what we're about. We're not just a place, a shop to go buy wine. We're about the experience with the food and the wine and the knowledge. All of those things mixed together make one of our wineries great. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into that experience later, but on the location front, so are you able to uh, open a location in every state or is there any licensing around making wine on site or how does that work? Yeah, that's really a, a key question. So we go and get a winery license, uh, not a liquor license, not a, a wine and beer license, as many people might think. Now, the good news is on the winery license side, in, in a, virtually every state that we've experienced so far, it's a pretty easy process. They don't lottery them. They're relatively inexpensive. Um, and when I say that, I mean usually under $2,000 to acquire, some cases under $1,000. So it's not a big deal to get the license. However, there are a handful of states that require that we actually grow grapes in state in order to have a winery license. Um, and, and that's changing. Um, they're, they're, that's actually unconstitutional. It's been challenged in federal court, um, but until an individual state is challenged on it, they're probably not gonna change their law. However, a, a piece of good news is we just worked closely with the Speaker of the House at the uh, Louisiana legislature, uh, Bo Ballou, and he uh, sponsored a bill that we got passed and the governor signed about a month ago to eliminate this requirement. So now we're going full steam ahead uh, and, and being able to uh, add some wineries in the in the Big Easy. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure that was an interesting process. When you when you go back and look at some of these laws, you know, they're, who knows when they're when they started or, you know, back in prohibition days or why they even exist anymore. But I bet you never thought you'd be, uh, you know, lobbying and stuff. Right. Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it is pretty cool. We're, we're, we're very excited. And, and I looked at, you know, where your current locations are open and where you have, you know, locations that are opening soon. And it's really a, a 
a pretty good representation of the, you know, the U.S. that that proves that this concept would would do well anywhere. I mean, I saw you have a bunch on the East Coast, a, a bunch in the Midwest and the Southwest, and obviously some in California. That says a lot about the model that this will that this will work anywhere. Yeah, it's it's true. And you know what's really interesting that I've realized, uh, Greg, is that. When we first opened in California and we called ourselves a winery, which we are, we're making the wine, we're producing the wine. People in California go into a winery, they have a pretty high expectation, right? You're in California, you better, you better be on your game because there's a lot of competition here, a lot of really great competition here. And so people have high expectations. And so when you can meet that in a place like California and go toe to toe with the rest of your uh, fellow wineries and have people enjoy your wine and give you good reviews. Now imagine when we go to a place like Texas or Oklahoma or Ohio or Florida and people come into our wineries and they taste our wine and, and their sort of their expectations are pretty low. A Texas winery, I, I don't know too many Texas wineries that make really good wine. Uh, not to diss my my brethren in Texas, but it's tough. It's like we can here. And so when our <laughs> guests come into our winery in, in say Texas or, or Oklahoma or Ohio, those, those kind of places, and they try our wines and they go, wait a minute, you, you can't have made this here in Ohio. You can't have made this here in Texas. Stop it, you know. And and, and we say, yeah, we, we have. We just didn't grow the grapes here. That's the difference. They, oh, okay, I get it. So it gives us actually an advantage in states that are not known for their winemaking and their wineries, um, like the ones I named, and obviously probably 90% of the United States to create opportunity for us to to really excel. Yeah, that's neat. It's funny. I'm, I was just laughing at that story because here in Colorado, there are some wineries out on the Western Slope. And I've, I've never been, but, you know, I guess I'm a wine snob because I'm, I, I didn't have much, you know, many high expectations for it, you know, thinking it's Boone's Farm or something like that. But, um, and I, I assume they just use Colorado grapes, but maybe we're, we're, we're due for a, a water's edge winery here in Colorado, I think. And, and I, I think I'd read that the, the U.S. Is, has recently surpassed France as the, the largest wine consuming nation in the world. So that's a, that's a good statistic for you guys, right? It is. Yeah. Wine, the, the consumption of wine in the United States uh, per capita has grown every year for the past 20 years, regardless of economic conditions, regardless of what else is going on, pandemics, uh, people, uh, the more affluent we become as a country, the more uh, the population turns to, to beverages like wine or higher end spirits and, so we see that. Nice. Can you, de- I assume most listeners haven't been in one of your locations. So can you kind of describe the experience of, of visiting uh, a Water's Edge winery? Um, I know it, it's not a restaurant, but it kind of has, you know, bistro style food. Is that right? Is that how you describe it? Yeah. So when, when they come into our wineries, um, first, they're often greeted with the wonderful aroma of fermenting wine. You mentioned breweries earlier. And bre- when beer's brewing, it smells very different than wine uh, fermenting. I don't mean to make the comparison that those smell similar, but you know what I mean in terms of that very strong aroma and ours is very pleasant, uh, the fermentation process going on in in our wineries. So that's the first thing most of our guests notice. And then as they look around, it kind of feels a little bit like a wine bar. They'll see high tops and low tops. They'll see a tasting bar area. But what really starts to separate us in in the consumer's mind is right behind glass, usually behind the tasting bar, perhaps over to the side, uh, you'll see our stainless steel tanks. And these are beautiful 600 liter each. There's a set of four of them at each of our locations. Uh, and that's where uh, a portion of the winemaking is done. Not all of it. We actually have another set of tanks that's usually back behind closed doors. But this tells that our guests that we're actually producing the wine that, that you're tasting here and drinking and enjoying, not just buying other people's wine and reselling it here. It's our wine. And so that creates sort of that aha moment in in, in consumers' minds. So that's uh, that's part of the experience. So then our, our team... We, we really, our, our franchise owners do work hard to train their staff 
to be knowledgeable about the wines we're serving, the regions they came from, the stories, the cultures, all that richness that people love to understand when they're buying a bottle of wine or tasting wine to know all the background of it. And so that's what we give our guests. We offer them uh, tastings. We offer them uh, bottles of wine they can buy there or, uh, and enjoy there or take home. They also enjoy glasses of wine. And then we have uh, our food, our bistro style food, which covers five categories usually of food. Uh, it's uh, uh, flatbreads, paninis, charcuterie boards, salads, and desserts. We're not a restaurant. Don't want to be a restaurant. It's just uh, enough food to keep people there longer, keep, keep them coming back more often. And then the other big part of our model is the wine club. So uh, our guests really love to join the club. Uh, many of our locations get 100, owner, 100 uh, uh, wine club members before they've even opened the doors, and then they grow it from there. And what this does is we charge their cards every single month, usually between about $35 and $65 a month. And that creates a recurring revenue stream for our owners that uh, they can start off the month with a, a nice you know, cash flow coming into their bank account before they've even opened their doors to begin with. So uh, it's it's a very helpful part of our business model to steady that cash flow out. Yeah, that is really nice. I didn't think about the the recurring component of the of the wine club. You also allow guests to to make custom labels, and and it's kind of a unique experience, right? It is. So one of the advantages that we have as wineries is that we can put custom labels on our wines. Uh, and the reason I say it that way is. Uh, it would be illegal against federal law if, if a local wine bar, say, was taking labels off of a, a bottle of wine they didn't produce, which obviously a wine bar doesn't produce anything, uh, and putting a custom label. So it creates sort of a, a unique niche that our wineries can fill. And I'll tell you what, Greg, you know, for all of the holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, I mean, you name the event, there's a reason to have a custom label on it. And we do it uh, very efficiently. Uh, we do it very professionally. So when somebody gets one of our custom labels, it looks absolutely fantastic. And, and our guests really go nuts over it because they, they can't get it anywhere else. It's, it's not something they can, they can just go find anywhere. So it creates a unique opportunity for our owners. Yeah, that is, that is really neat. And then it, it you know, it probably makes them want to want to come in and experience it themselves as well if they get it as a gift. So that's neat. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's a great marketing tool for, for our owners. Kind of a, an advantage that that you guys have over a traditional wine bar where they're just essentially reselling wine, right? Like any other bar and restaurant is, is that uh, when you're making your own, there's better margins in the wine, I assume, correct? Yeah, that's really the, I think the reason I'm so attracted to this business is the financial ability of one of our owners to really make very high gross margins. And so because you're the producer of the product uh, and the retailer all under one, in, in one building, uh, there's no distribution system eating up the, the margins as there is in a traditional wine uh, distribution. I mean, when you think about it, the winery in Napa had to produce it. Then they had to put it uh, on a truck to a distributor who then has to get it to the restaurant or the retailer. And all those steps before it gets to the consumer, all those people need a cut of the margin. So uh, when you've got a, a $25 or $30 bottle of wine, everybody needs a piece of that in that system. In our case, nobody else gets a piece of it. Uh, they they are get the production cost the Napa winery owner was able to get but also the retail price that the retailer was able to get on the other end of that and keep everything in between. And typically, it sounds like within a few months, or at least by the end of the first year, that most new franchisees are able to produce everything uh, in-house at their at their location. That's exactly right. Um, we What we have here in California is a pretty large uh, production facility. We've got 6,000 square feet uh, to produce all of the startup wine for our new locations. So, uh, the first day they open, 
all the wine on their shelf is going to have come from our facility. Now, it'll be the exact same wine that they're going to wind up making. So they're, they'll slowly transition as they get their own production going uh, and, and able to, to wean off of our supply, which we want them to do as soon as possible. But they, they're dependent upon us for everything day one. They'll be dependent on us for their red wines for about 12 months. Uh, the whites and the sangria wines, because those take less time and don't require any aging, they're usually independent of those within about two to three months. That's, I mean, that's great. Really, a huge help that you that corporate's able to support them like that. And then, and all, and then also, as you mentioned, that it's the same wine, so their customers aren't going to recognize a difference when they bring it in house versus you know corporate doing it. So that's that's a, a huge advantage. So, uh, kind of, what's the day in the life of a of an owner? you know, typical hours and, and things like that? Most of our locations are open uh, Tuesday through Sunday. We, we usually go dark on Mondays at most locations. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they usually are open for lunch, 1130 or noon, they'll open their doors. Um, then they'll stay open until about nine o'clock. Uh, Friday and Saturday, same opening. They're usually closing by 10. We don't really want them going later. We're not a bar. We start attracting the wrong crowd after 10 o'clock. So uh, our owners close at, at, at 10. Uh, so it's not a real late night business and certainly not an early morning business either. Uh, a lot of our owners, uh, they're, they're, there's two main roles that have to fill in the, in the uh, operations. One is the general manager role, the operating all the, the staff, the scheduling, you know, really doing the administrative part of the business. And then we also need a winemaker, which is about a 20 hour a week job for the first year. And so most of the time our owners fill both those roles for the first six to 12 months because they really want to get their arms around the business. Now, does that mean we can't support an absentee or semi-absentee operation? Absolutely, we can. We just need those two positions to be able to train and get them in there. Um, but most most of our owners really want to get their arms around it before they start hiring people to do those jobs so they understand them completely. Uh, there's very few people that come into our system that have ever run uh, a, a winery. And, and in fact, nobody has run a winery. A few have run restaurants, so they have some idea of how the retail restaurant type operation uh, works. But you know, so they want to get their arms around it, so they can't be held hostage down the road by one of their employees saying, "Hey, you don't pay me this, I'm, you know, I'm going to walk." And and so my owners don't ever want to be in that position, so they they do tend to take on those roles in the beginning. But after a year, they're usually out of them, at least most of it. Yeah, and I assume that that you know most of your owners come into this passionate about wine, so it, it's probably a really cool process for them to go through to to understand the winemaking process. And they're, they're probably really excited to learn about that. Yeah, there's no question. Um, it, really, I look for two things in, in a prospective owner early on to determine if they might be a good fit or not for us. Uh, the first is exactly what you said. Are they passionate about wine? I don't care if they know a lot about wine. I can teach them that. But, but do they love sharing wine? Do they love talking about wine? Do they love you know visiting wine country, wherever that might be for them? Um, those are the things, the traits I'm looking for. I can't teach them that passion if they don't have it. The second trait I look for is, do they do they really enjoy people? If you're not a people person and you're sort of introverted and would rather just sit in an office and not really participate in in, in the people part of our business, nah, this probably isn't a great model for you. But if you're an outgoing uh, person that loves to hear about people, learn about people, you're curious about people, boy, this is this is a home run if you've got those two traits. Uh, this, this really fits the bill. And, and I find a lot of people who have spent their corporate careers in a corporate environment and they're just, they're burned out. There's no joy in that. Yes, there's purpose, you know, but, but they're just burned out and and they really want this joy of being able to celebrate with people and see smiles on their face because of something you're doing. And that's exactly what our business is all about is putting smiles on people's faces, 
giving them uh, a, a, an education as well as um, really a, an experience. And, and that's what people are escaping from corporate life to come to open up a Water's Edge winery that they say to me all the time is, not only has this just changed the joy in my life, but I feel like a rock star in my community because who owns a winery? You know, nobody owns a winery, you know, so they do. They become rock stars in their own community as winery owners. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, what a, what a fun business to own and, and talk about and, and promote. You know, there's there's a lot of interesting franchises out there, but it's not like, you know, you're you're a roofing contractor or a house painter or something. When you own a winery, it's it's definitely fun to talk about. And the. Uh, you know, I was just thinking the way you have it set up that that corporate is able to uh, supply their their wine initially. They you know they they don't have to come out day one and and know how to be a winemaker. I assume they can they can get things open and then then the winemaking process they're learning as they're as they're doing it at their at their location. So uh, is training like a year long process? I would imagine. Yeah, we certainly. I, I guess I would uh, modify that a little bit. When, when they open their doors day one, they're certified as winemakers. They're they're, okay. they're doing. They're confident in what they're doing. They're confident in their knowledge. So before they even get to the opening of their doors or really their winemaking at their place, they've gone through a multi layered approach with my team here. I have a director of training. I have a head winemaker, and uh, we go through a very um, layered approach. Some of it is is uh, home study. Some of it is uh, um, classroom online classroom learning with my director of training, uh, and then some of it is done here in California, and then some of it is done at their site and at their location. So by the time they're actually doing winemaking, uh, they're no longer in a learning curve. Uh, they're getting more skills. Certainly, they don't have all the skills and the uh, ability, but they've got everything documented. They've done every process already multiple times with us. And they're confident in what they're doing. That it's it's it shouldn't be a learning curve at that point uh, when they're making wine. Again, we can't have somebody open up and still figuring out how to make good wine because the, the guests aren't going to give them a second chance if the wine isn't great every time. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And and we we talked a little bit about you know what it what it costs to open a, a traditional winery. You know, probably millions or tens of millions. What what's a typical investment uh, for you guys? The investment uh, at the low end, and this is all in, including the, the, the build out, all the equipment, all the inventory, um, uh, working capital in your bank account, is going to be in the, in the 500,000 range, you know, 550, somewhere in that, in that range. Could we go below that? Possibly, but it, it, it would have to be a, a different kind of build out that we didn't have uh, the cost we would expect to have for the build out. And then on the higher end of that, uh, it's typically going to be around 800, 850,000. And the biggest variable in that swing, a lot of people say, well, that's, you know, that's a pretty big range. Well, first of all, if somebody has a budget, they know what they can borrow. They know what their lending is uh, going to be. And they say, look, here's the, the cap. I got to keep this project at. Well, then that dictates what kind of a place we're going to go look at. As long as it's in that range. You know, if you tell me your cap's 250, I, I can't help. Uh, you know, that's not going to work. But but if it's in that range, we can keep it at or below a certain cap if somebody has a specific budget that they have to meet. The second thing I will tell you is that the biggest variable in that is the build out. Uh, that's the unknown because we have locations as small as 2,500 square feet. We have locations as big as over 5,000 square feet and uh, and everything in between. And uh, depending on what the vision is of that owner, you know, for example, they may want to provide a lot of private event space because they see the demand for that in their market. So they want a little larger space to have private event areas, uh, then they, they can go for that. But that's what that variable is about is how big is the space and what kind of condition is it in when we take it over in terms of what needs to still be done with it. Yeah, that's nice. You you have that range um, just for, for 
you know, different op- opportunities or options. And it sounds like that you guys help with site selection and, you know, working, working through that, what, what they kind of want to, what the experience, you know, whether they want to have more space to have events or that sort of thing, and then help them with site selection. Yeah, we actually have a very sophisticated site selection process. Uh, once somebody is 90% sure they, that this is what they want to do, they've gone through validation, they've read the FTD, they've, you know, talked to their attorney, all those kind of steps that everybody should do in evaluating franchise system. Um, we go to the deposit stage, and in that stage, that we, we look for a $10,000 deposit towards the whole franchise fee. And in exchange for that, what we do is we then engage our real estate services and my director of operations to help coordinate everything. And we begin looking for locations. When we find locations, then what we do is we have an analysis that we can we do automatically on it that we, we subscribe to the metadata from the cell phone companies that we know where people are coming from, what what neighborhoods to go to that particular location already for the other businesses that exist there. And so we know what's what other locations in our system, what is the successful ones, uh, what where people are coming from, what neighborhoods, what what's called psychographics. It's more sophisticated than just demographics. And we overlay that to who's coming to the center now. So we have a high level of you know assuredness that when we pick a location, we know how closely it matches our other successful locations in terms of the psychographics who's, who are already visiting that site. So our location should be able to operate and get up and going very quickly. And, and we just saw that, in fact, in our um, location that just opened in a suburb of Toledo. They opened in June. And they're, they're, they're absolutely just, I mean, the, the demand there is, is so crazy. The owner, I was talking to her a couple of days ago, and she said, Ken, she said, last Wednesday, I put 20 cases of wine on my shelf and she said, it's Tuesday and they're all gone. And, and so in, in a, in a, you know, over a weekend, wow. basically a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, she, uh, they're closed Sunday and Monday. So uh, the, I said, the wine locusts descend upon you, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, the, the pandemic was rough for all of us, but I will say that people are, uh, excited to get out and, and socialize again and do all those things we weren't able to do. So it's, uh, I'm sure that's, that's great for business. I, I was going to ask once, once, um, agreements are signed, I mean, I know construction is the wild card, but typically how long are before you're seeing, you know, uh, locations kind of operational. So once we've got the lease signed, that's sort of a key milestone for us. Um, and that, that usually is pretty close to after we've, uh, uh they've become a full franchisee. Um, they've paid the balance of their franchise fee. Once that's done and, and, and we can now move to design and then ultimately construction and build out. In most cases, it's going to be about six to eight months to get their doors open. Um, that it could go longer if there's, you know, there's an extreme renovation going on or something really dramatic happening in the building. I, I wouldn't expect it to be a lot less than six months in most cases, but but six to eight months is a reasonable time frame to expect from the time the lease is signed. No, that seems really reasonable. Well, Ken, this has been great. I'd be happy to get any listeners in touch with you that, that were interested in learning more, but is the uh, is the best place uh, for them to start your website? Yeah, go to our website at watersedgewineries.com. Uh, there is a video on there that I recommend everybody watches. Uh, it'll help determine if this seems like it's a good fit for you or not. You'll understand better. You'll hear more from me about the model. You'll see our Long Beach location in there so you can actually see what a location looks like uh, and, and and start there. Go peruse the website of, of some of our locations. They're all listed on the website there. Look at their their menus. Read their reviews. Uh, they're right on their websites. Their, their reviews are on there and you'll be pretty impressed with what our guests are, are saying at, at our locations about our wine, about our food, about the experience. So that's a great place to start. 
and then of course come back to you, Greg, and, and let let uh, let Greg know what you think about about the model and if you want to continue the conversation. Great. Well, well, Ken, thanks again for joining us. I've, I've really enjoyed enjoyed learning more about Water's Edge Wineries, and I know you uh, you know the organization was recognized as a Franchise Dictionary Magazine Top 100 Game Changer in 2019, and you're a part of uh, FranServe's Fantastic 500 in 2020. So I'm I'm really excited to watch you guys grow and have continued success and see one of these in in every state. Uh, so Greg, one of the things I'll mention to you, I'll give your listeners a little bit of a sneak preview, uh, is that we have a very big announcement coming in mid-August. I can't say much more than that. Uh, I'm sort of bound to secrecy, uh, but uh, it's it's along the same lines of what you just mentioned in terms of recognition of our growth and our size, and we're very excited about this. This is going to be a big deal when we're able to announce this. So stay tuned. Keep a, keep a lookout on our news section, our headline. Uh, and, and you should see some more information on this next month. Awesome. I'm excited to hear about it. <laughs> thanks again, Ken. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Franchise Hounds. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode or would like to work with me directly to explore franchise ownership opportunities, please reach out through the form on our website at FranchiseHounds.com.